All right, let's get everybody in here. It's 9.30. We're going to get started with our lesson. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to week 42 of our study through systematic theology. We began this study 10 months ago. Stephen Parkin, if those of you that were here remember, Stephen introduced us to the topic of systematic theology. And over the past 10 months, we've gone through quite a few topics. And today, we come to our final topic in this series, which is eschatology. So this morning, we're going to begin studying what the scriptures say about the future. And I've entitled our lesson today, cleverly, Introduction to Eschatology. So my goal today for this lesson is to define some terms that are very important in the study of eschatology uh, so that we understand these words. Um, We also want to um, just kind of have a brief overview of the Bible's timeline and how eschatology fits with God's plans. But most importantly, this is what I'm the most excited about, is that we need to ground our thinking in why this topic is so important, and we should be excited to study eschatology. I, I hope that comes forward today in this lesson. So looking forward, this is going to be a seven-week course. Today, of course, I'm doing the intro. Next week, Stephen will talk on personal eschatology, death, the intermediate state, resurrection, heaven and hell. J.D., two weeks from now, will talk about the return of Christ And then he'll teach on the coming kingdom. Carrie Wilson will teach on the new heaven and earth. J.D. will come back again and teach on the rapture, that blessed hope. And then on week seven, which will be week 48 of of our series through systematic theology, we'll finish up with a review and a question and answer. And then at that point, I'm sure J.D. and Stephen will reveal what we're going to study next. So that's kind of where we've been and where we're going I want to say that most studies through systematic theology kind of minimize this discussion. Uh, They don't talk that much about future events, especially as they relate to the Old Testament promises to national Israel. And that's something that 25 men met in the basement yesterday for two hours and talked about, the promises God made to Israel. So uh, not every church really does that, and, and it gets overlooked quite a bit. This is why John MacArthur has famously said, if you get Israel right you'll get eschatology right. What he means by that is if you understand who Israel is and what God's promises to Israel mean, that'll really help you clarify eschatology. MacArthur also said, I love this quote, he says, the reason that a lot of churches don't teach on the book of Revelation, eschatology in general, is the same reason they rarely teach on Genesis 1 through 11 because you don't teach on what you don't understand very well. So we are going to try to be Berean And uh, like we talked about when we went through our section on bibliology, the doctrine of the scriptures, we understand that that God revealed the scriptures to us to be understood. And although we, we recognize that not everything that he's revealed to us is revealed with with equal clarity and a lot of things in the future, we still don't understand. But we're going to do our best to understand what the entirety of scripture says on the future. That's why we're doing systematic theology. And uh, we're going to try to find out uh, what God has revealed to us the best we can because it's important. It's a very important topic. Eschatology is all about the culmination of God's redemptive plan. So our goal as teachers over the next seven weeks is to summarize as best we can, to the best of our ability, 
all of the things that he has revealed about the future. But before we begin this, let's pray. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for believers willing to put in extra time to understand doctrine. Lord, thank you for your revealed word. Uh, Father, we're fallen sinful creatures. We, we pray for forgiveness. We thank you for the blessing of grace. And we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill this building. Now, uh, bless my teaching, bless the hearing of your word. And later when G, uh, J.D. opens up the scriptures and we worship you and praise you, uh, Father, we praise you for all things that you've revealed to us. Help us to understand more clearly that we may glorify you more fully. In Christ's name, uh, we pray. Amen. All right, so my uh, source today is Biblical Doctrine by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew. And here's our outline. We're going to define eschatology. We'll talk about how God's future plans fit into his overall plans. We're going to look at a couple of models that examine what God's purposes are for the future. Then we're going to go into Bible interpretation, which we talked about yesterday at our men's group. And then we'll finish by talking about the focal point, the reason for the future that everything hinges on, and that is the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So let's jump right in. I'll ask, who doesn't enjoy a thrilling conclusion to a great story? And we all do, right? As the story continues, the plot builds, we all wonder, how is this going to end? What surprises and twists lie ahead? Will good triumph over evil? The Bible presents the greatest story ever told. It is a a historical narrative, and it tells us exactly what's going to happen. It's the greatest story ever told. Uh, I like the author Colin Eakin, who wrote a book called God's Glorious Story. That's what the Bible is. And it starts dramatically in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then throughout the historical narrative, we're introduced to some fascinating characters, Adam and Eve, the serpent, God's adversary. Uh, Then along comes a guy named Noah, the patriarch, Abraham, and then Isaac and Jacob. And then we're introduced to Moses, the pharaoh of Egypt, that great antagonist. Uh, Then King Solomon and King David. we have John the Baptist in the New Testament, guys like Paul and Peter. Of course, we, we meet the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who it all centers around. We have other antagonists in the New Testament like King Herod and then uh, Judas Iscariot. And then in the end, there will be others that we're introduced to. So this, this great story, God's great story, is the ultimate good versus evil storyline. It's the great cosmic battle between, between the creator God and his adversary, the fallen angel, Satan. So we all want to know, how does it end, right? Everybody's fascinated about that. Uh, Obviously, in systematic theologies, eschatology is always the final topic. But just because it's the last topic, it certainly doesn't mean it's the least in importance. On the contrary, it's revealing the events that are to come, the the events that are associated with what Acts 3.21 calls the restoration of, of all things. That's something we should be excited about. The word eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos, means last, end, final. So eschatology deals primarily with the events associated with the second coming of Christ. That's the pivotal point, the focus of eschatology. And then you have other subcategories under the heading of eschatology, uh, such as Daniel's 70th week. Uh, people commonly refer to that as the tribulation, that last seven years of the church age. The Bible, interestingly, never calls it the tribulation. 
In Matthew 24, Jesus refers to the Great Tribulation, but it actually comes after the midpoint. So Daniel's 70th week is one of the topics uh, we'll be looking at. Uh, the resurrection of the dead. Did you know there's actually two? Two resurrections, one for the believers, one for the non-believers later. Then judgment is another topic we'll look at. The millennial kingdom, which is quite exciting. And then best of all, the new heaven on earth. And we'll spend, Carrie will spend time teaching on that. So when we think about what is to come, think about this. How could any of us as believers not be excited about what lies ahead? This should be a really exciting study to us. But again, a lot of churches are reluctant to study through eschatology. But the end matters most, right? It's the purpose for everything. And the Bible, again, has described for us in detail how it's going to end. And, and we know, most of us have read through the ending, and we know that it's a glorious, incredible ending. And it should serve, listen to this, this is why we're going through this. This should serve, this, this series through eschatology should serve as the ultimate source of hope and encouragement for the believer Paul, if you remember, Paul wrote to the, uh, the believers in Corinth about the resurrection and the transformation of the body at Christ's second coming. And this is a really important thought I want us to keep in mind as we go through the next few weeks as we study this topic about the future. Because the more we live in the knowledge and the anticipation of Christ's second coming, the more our sanctification should increase and the more we become like him. Look what John said uh, in 1 John 3, 2 through 3, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, talking present tense, that's us now, purifies himself as he is pure. I also love this. This is wonderful. Uh, Paul, writing to Titus in uh, Titus 2, 12 through 13, says, we are waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the Glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want, to, I want to talk about this word hope. This is important because we use the word hope today very differently than the way the Bible uses the word hope. You see, when we use the word hope, we use it kind of to describe the uh, balancing of probabilities. Like I'll say, I hope it doesn't rain today, you know, but it might. Or we say, I hope that stock I purchased will increase in value, but it might not. Or... One of our college women might say, I hope that young, good-looking guy who's coming to Redemption Hill Church uh, takes an interest in me and asks me out, but he might not, you know. So we use it as a, a balancing of probabilities. I hope, but maybe not. Or sometimes we use the, the word hope as a synonym for despair. Like uh, imagine somebody in the hospital who's on a downward spiral towards death, and the doctors say, we've done all that we can medically. It's time to come to grips with reality, and the family's left to go, all we have is hope. You know, unless God intervenes supernaturally with a miracle, all we have is hope. So we use, we use the word hope as a synonym for despair or a balancing of probabilities, right? But the Bible, when the Bible uses the word hope, it's talking about something that's sure. When Paul uses the word blessed hope, he's talking about something that's certain and it's absolute. The only reason that it's called a hope is because its actualization is still in the future. I don't have it yet, tangibly, but I'm going to get it. So when we talk about the blessed hope, I have a blessed hope. I have a living hope. Jesus is coming again, okay? But it's more than just the fact that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again, and if I die by chance before he comes back, 
I will be resurrected from the dead. That is the blessed hope. Again, I, I hope that we keep this important thought in mind as we go through this, what lies ahead for the believer. But as we finish this study, and, and of course we know that all the difficulties of this life will end, right? That's, that's amazing. Uh, death will be defeated. Uh, we'll be reunited with loved ones. Revelation 21 says we will actually see the face of God. I mean, who, who can't get excited about these things, right? But we also have to recognize that the, the story does not end well for everyone, okay? So our study of eschatology should also serve as a warning to anyone who proclaims to be a Christian but doesn't live as a Christian, who hasn't truly bowed the knee, been born again by the Holy Spirit, and has the assurance of salvation. That blessed hope speaks to our assurance and knowledge of salvation. That's why we're excited. But for those who don't have that, for the unrepentant, when Christ comes back, it's going to be very, very bad. It's going to be judgment. It's going to be a day of wrath. And according to Scripture, they will be cut off from the future eternal life of glorious living with Christ and away from God's presence, and the Scriptures say, into the eternal fires of hell. So these are important things to think about. We also recognize that we, as human beings, lack the ability to affect the future. And we really don't have the perfect knowledge to understand it. We see these things dimly through a fog, right? But we take great confidence in knowing that our God is all-powerful and all-knowing, omnipotent, omniscient. He is sovereign over all things. The Bible presents God as being fully in control of the beginning and the end. And as God himself revealed through the prophet Isaiah in 46, 9 through 10, he said, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. Our study of eschatology, of future things, should encourage us in righteousness, knowing that righteousness will prevail a lot of talk about justice in the world today. True justice will be accomplished. Death will be defeated. And God has sovereignly ordained all things that are happening now and that will come to pass. And that should give us great hope. Can I get an amen? Thank you. So that is why knowing these things, having the blessed hope, this is why we as believers don't live like the rest of the world. Right now who are trembling in fear of those things that they're told to be fearful of, we look forward to our blessed hope. We do not live in fear. This is an amazing thing. That's why this topic is so important now. I want to move on and define a couple of terms before we move on to point number two. I want to talk about personal eschatology versus cosmic or prophetic eschatology, okay? Because um, these things are good to parse out. Pers personal eschatology answers the question, what is an individual person's destiny? And this is what uh, Stephen is going to teach on next week. He'll be teaching on things like um, death, the intermediate state, what happens after we die. We'll talk about the resurrection, judgment, and then where someone will spend all of eternity. That's personal eschatology. And then in the weeks following, J.D. and Carrie will handle cosmic or prophetic eschatology, which, ish, which cover broader issues such as the biblical covenants, the second coming of Jesus, the rapture, which J.D. will cover, 
Daniel's 70th week, again, that last seven years of our time, and then the future millennial kingdom and the eternal state, the new heaven on earth. So again, personal eschatology focuses more narrowly on the destiny of us as individuals. Cosmic or prophetic eschatology deals with the broader issues and how God will deal with his creation as a whole, whether in in heaven or on earth. So that's the difference there. So overall, the study of eschatology deals with tracking uh, what God has done throughout history on a grand scale. And yet, of course, we recognize that it is intensely personal because it involves each of our own personal destinies. So there's quite a bit at stake. And the end of the story is the whole point of the story. So let's move forward. Let's look at eschatology and God's plans. We're going to do a a very quick recap of the Bible's storyline because it has a historical flow. Most of the Bible is historical narrative. At this point in time, history has experienced six of the seven C's. I, I stole this from Answers in Genesis, one of my favorite ministries. I really like how complete this is. So we start with creation. God created the perfect world. Then came corruption. Satan entered the created realm. And uh, with it, he fooled Adam and Eve, caused the fall, a very real fall, which brought sin and death into the world. Uh, Shortly after that, the world became so evil that God brought a unique judgment to the entire world through Noah's flood, which destroyed all people except eight and completely reformed the geological aspect of our realm as we know it today. Then came confusion at the Tower of Babel. God confused the languages of the people, sent them packing to different regions of the world, speaking different languages and developing different cultures, which is still reigning today. Uh, And then skip forward in time, centuries, until the promised Messiah, Christ, comes. Jesus comes to his people, but they reject him. But he fulfills numerous Old Testament prophecies. We'll, We'll talk about that. But Christ is sent to the cross. Here is where God implements his new covenant plan through which he will restore the creation, including mankind. And uh, we know that the violent death that Christ suffered on the cross provides atonement as the foundation for the reconciliation of all things. That's what Colossians 1.20 says. And of course, we know he returns to heaven, and from there he pours out his Holy Spirit on believers and on the church And that's where we are today. Here we are in the church age, and we're looking forward to the last historically seismic event known as consummation, or the culmination of all things, or the restoration of all things. This includes, again, Christ's second coming, the rapture of the believers, the millennial kingdom, judgment, the final defeat of evil and death, and then finally, that exciting part, the new heaven and earth in the eternal state where God will live with his people. And this is why we get excited studying these things. Uh, I'll read from Revelation 21. At that point in history, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. These events and This consummation that fulfills God's plans are the focus of eschatology. So let's look at a couple of eschatological models. There's different ways that people approach God's purposes, and this has to do with how you interpret future events. What is God's purpose for all of this? 
we have a lot of different, well, a couple of different views, assumptions that uh, come to understanding God's purposes. And so obviously your prior beliefs of how you come to uh, understand what God's going to do affects your interpretation of eschatology and biblical prophecy. Um, if you have the wrong assumption, it can kind of distort how you view these things, and we'll look at a couple of those. And that's why it's important that we ground our understanding of God's purposes for his creation in Scripture, and we don't go to other philosophies and, and uh, worldviews to figure out uh, what's God's purpose. So what are these differing views? There are two models to approaching the view of God's purposes. There's the spiritual vision model and the new creation model. Again, they function as ways of viewing God's purposes. The spiritual vision model elevates spiritual realities over physical matters. So in this view, there's like a stark dualism between the physical and the immaterial. The spiritual is valued more highly than the, the physical, and material, physical realities are actually perceived as inferior or evil. This was uh, uh, something uh, that Plato pronounced, and, and there's something called Platonism, and it still kind of exists today. Uh, you can see this in statements like, uh, tell me if you've heard these statements, God is interested in saving the soul, not the body, or God's kingdom is spiritual, not physical, or have you ever heard this one, a Christian's eternal destiny is in heaven, not on earth, right? So uh, I, I think people that have said these things obviously didn't read Revelation 21, the first two verses. We'll go through some of this stuff, but we also see um, spiritual vision type of thinking uh, in beliefs that the land promises, uh, the national promises, the physical promises that God repeatedly gave to Abraham and the patriarchs in the Old Testament are going to only be fulfilled spiritually in the church or absorbed by the person of Christ. And this is the kind of thinking that ultimately leads to this notion that I probably had when I was a kid, that when you go to heaven, you're just up on a cloud. It's kind of an um, existential, non-material existence. Like the, You guys remember the Far Side cartoons by Gary Larson? Hilarious. He had one that depicted a man sitting on a cloud in a white robe with a halo and wings on his back, and he's obviously bored out of his mind, and he says, wish I'd brought a magazine, right? And if you really think about this, uh, this is such a non-biblical concept. It, it's saying that existence in heaven is boring, but there is obviously a better way to think about the eternal state, and that's what we're going to try to do here. We want to look at the biblical model. So in contrast to this spiritual vision model, we have the new creation model, and it affirms the goodness of all of God's creation, including the material realm. Think about what Paul declared in Colossians 1.16, for by him, he's talking about Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. The creation is composed of both spiritual and material realities, and both matter to God, pun not intended. Both were negatively affected by the sin and the fall of man, and both will be restored by God. This model also affirms that the promises that God made to national Israel will be fulfilled as the authors described. Again, looking at uh, Acts 3.21, I don't have a slide on it here, but Peter spoke of the coming restoration of all things, and I tend to think that when he says all, that it actually means all. So the, the new creation approach, it doesn't deny 
uh, the importance of spiritual truths and realities. It actually affirms them. But the new creation model opposes any efforts to um, spiritualize physical realities or to treat them as inferior. Okay, so in the new creation model, spiritual and physical blessings come together. So we look at passages like, I've got them listed here, um, Isaiah 11, 35, 65, 66. You read Romans 8, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, Revelation 21. They all affirm that God's future plans actually involve physical, material realities. It, get this, it's really interesting. They, t- they talk about a, a regenerated earth and tangible things like nations, like kings, like economics, agriculture. They describe the animal kingdom and sociopolitical issues. So these things are not erased in, in the future coming kingdom, but they are restored. That's an important thing to understand. So again, when we're talking about this glorious new coming reality, God declares, this is Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. Again, the word all there. So the bad things that we know exist today, uh, you know, decay, death, sin, the curse, all these things will be removed, but the perfect created realm will be redeemed. So the final destiny of God's people is not some, like Gary Larson's cartoon, not some ethereal existence in the sky, but a tangible new existence on a new earth. I can't wait to see what it's like. What what are we going to be doing? I know we'll be worshiping, but... Uh, There's a physical aspect to it. Um, This is also interesting. So under the new creation model, it connects, and when we look at God's purposes, this makes more sense to me anyway, because it connects protology, prototype, protology, the beginning of things or origins, with the end, eschatology, the end of all things. So if you think about the Bible's storyline in chapters one and two of Genesis, right? God created all things in six days tangibly, perfectly, material and immaterial, right? And, and then it's not restored to perfect perfection physically and, and spiritually until the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22. And everything else in between is, is not that way. Um, it's, it's groaning, as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, the whole creation has been groaning as have we, as we await eagerly the redemption of our bodies, So isn't that interesting that everything that was created perfectly in the beginning will be recreated perfectly once again at the end? And that seems to make sense. It connects protology, the beginning origins, with eschatology, the end of things. Now, we have stated here, we've talked about this, that we understand the scriptures to say that everything that God created, both physical and immaterial, are created for what end purpose? For his glory. Everything, when it's culminated, will glorify God in the eyes of every creature. Everything in the world will glorify him. Even the existence of evil and Satan. Why do they exist? For his glory when they're ultimately defeated. So if we can grasp that purpose, that it will help us a lot in our understanding of, of what lies ahead. We also know from Colossians 1.16, again, I think I mentioned this. Uh, you know, Paul's writing again, all things visible and invisible, uh, they exist in the world What we don't find in Scripture is any defined dualism that separates the material from uh, the immaterial or that says one is better than the other. When we think about mankind uh, 
ourselves, God made man as a complex union of both soul and body, uh, physical and immaterial. So God's purposes seem to indicate uh, that there will be a restoring of both the physical and the immaterial. And this I love. Uh, Peter speaks about the day of the Lord when uh, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So he seems to be, Peter seems to clearly be describing physical realities that lie in the future. And I don't have a slide on this, but if you look at Matthew 19, 28, Jesus tells his disciples that in the new world, he says, he will be sitting on a throne and the 12 of them will be on 12 thrones ruling over the nations. And he says, this is really interesting. Christ says, anyone who leaves their home or their families or their land for my name's sake will be uh, repaid back a hundredfold. But I don't know how you repay back land or homes uh, spiritually. So again, we favor the new creation model. It makes a lot more sense, not just allegorizing everything spiritually. Which kind of leads us into point number four, eschatology and Bible interpretation. This is something the men's group uh, kind of touched on yesterday. This is very, very important. Uh, again, I quoted John MacArthur as saying, if you get Israel right, you're likely to get your eschatology right. But to understand, again, to understand what the Bible means in the Old Testament when it talks about Israel, ethnic Israel, and John Cook and I, we had a discussion about this yesterday. He brought up the good question. How we define Israel is really important. What is it? Um, so we, we need, when we're coming to these things, we need to use the proper hermeneutic. It's a big academic word, but it's, uh, it's something we need to do consistently. This is a key to understanding um, all of Scripture, but in, in, definitely with, with regards to prophecy and eschatology. I want to explain this word, big academic word, makes you sound really smart. Hermeneutics is nothing more than the science and the art of biblical interpretation. And, and if I had to pick away, I was thinking about this. Um, of course, Jesus was the incarnate word. He didn't need Bible interpretation. But if I had to describe his method of interpretation, the way he dealt with and viewed and taught the scriptures, I would say it matched the, the, uh, what we call the grammatical, historical, interpretive method of hermeneutics. Let me explain what this is. The word grammatical is in this um, name because it has to do with the fact that the words that the Bible's authors chose are very important to the message they meant to convey to their audience, okay? Um, this fits with the normal means of communication, right? I, I, I mean what I say, and I say what I mean, right? There's not multiple meanings. There's not hidden meanings. Uh, there's not some meaning that the individual reader comes to the text and says, well, I think based on my experience and worldview, that's not really what the author is saying. I read between the lines, that's what it's really saying to me. No, no, no. It's the, the grammatical historical method is all about authorial intent. What did that author mean to say? And what would his audience have understood as he wrote it at that time? That's, that's the key to understanding um, in this method. We also use the word historical here because we know, like I mentioned, the Bible, massive portions of the Bible are historical narrative. And that includes future history. You know, prophetic history, eschatological history. So this is all common sense. This fits with the natural approach to communications. Like I said, I say what I mean, I mean what I say. We take it at the author's word that that's what the Holy Spirit 
intended them to write, and we can understand it easily that way. So again, I said a consistent hermeneutic is the thing we should strive for in all areas of the Bible. And, and as we talk about eschatology, a lot of us think, well, we need to do this for the book of Revelation. But it, it, it might surprise some people to know that eschatology is not just about how you, you use hermeneutics on the book of Revelation. It goes way beyond that. The future is unpacked significantly through vast parts of, of Scripture. Um, Daniel. You read the book of Daniel, man, a lot of eschatological information there. The book of Isaiah, Zechariah talks about the future. Joel talks about the coming day of the Lord. Even all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Boy, read Matthew chapter 24 sometime. Uh, 1 John, the book of Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. Man, Paul is unpacking for the Thessalonians what they can expect about Christ's second coming. First and Second Peter. Titus, even the little book of Jude, they all give us information about God's plan for the future, and I'm probably leaving some out. So eschatology is more than just the book of Revelation. So when we use our hermeneutics, it should be with all Scripture consistently. Unfortunately, a lot of uh, Bible-believing Christians um, don't always use this method consistent, consistently. Uh, there's a pretty long history of what I would call unwarranted abandonment of this technique when it comes to eschatological portions of Scripture. And like I said, if, if we abandon this method, like when we come to the Old Testament promises to ethnic Israel, um, it leads to a belief that somehow the church has replaced Israel, that all the blessings that are talked about are now absorbed by the church or that the land promises made to national Israel Really, they're just about spiritual blessings for the church. Let me, let me give you an example again of how if we abandon a, a, this method, it can kind of lead to a little bit of confusion and error. If you read chapter 7 of Revelation, it clearly describes 144,000 Israelites, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. If you keep reading in chapter 7 of Revelation, all of a sudden there's this massive unnumbered group of people, saved Gentiles. The scripture says they're from every nation, from all lands, peoples and languages. So these first 144,000 people are clearly contrasted from the second group of saved Gentiles. And yet, some theologians tend to look at those ethnic Israelites as the church. So there's, there's really no need. It's unwarranted. There's no textual, contextual clues that say you should abandon this method of authorial intent. And that gets a little confusing. Here's, here's another example. If you abandon the grammatical historical method uh, it also leads to a complete dismissal of this section, uh, Revelation 20, 1 through 7. It speaks about the future millennial kingdom of Christ, and it's actually a thousand-year kingdom. Now, a lot of people who use the spiritual vision model allegorize this, and they say, well, it's, it's, the kingdom is now. Uh, or it's not really a thousand years, but I, I like to look at this, and I go, wow, I, I just wonder if God thought... Boy, those people in modern times are going to be so dense. Maybe I'd better reiterate a couple of times here. A thousand years, the thousand years, a thousand years, the thousand years, a thousand years, the thousand years. I wonder if it's going to be a literal thousand-year kingdom. You know, I'm, I'm being a little mocking, but, you know, I've, I've actually read quotes from theologians who were kind of allegorists, and they would, they would write in their writings and they would say, clearly it describes a literal, physical, thousand-year kingdom, but we, we don't believe it's going to happen that way. 
And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, if, if, if this is the millennial kingdom, that, that's disappointing. It, it seems to me that, that if I'm going to witness to a Jew and say the kingdom is now, if I were a Jew, I'd say I don't want any part of it. We also have to consider all the prophecies about Jesus that came true in a literal, physical sense. Jesus was, we know this, literally, physically born of a virgin, according to Isaiah chapter 7. He was literally, physically born in Bethlehem, according to the prophecy in Micah 5.2. He died a very real, tortured, physical death that fulfilled the prophecies found in Isaiah 53. So again, I would say that Jesus used a grammatical, historical hermeneutic. For example, uh, again, talking about Matthew 24, the Olivet Discord. Jesus is talking directly to his disciples about his second coming. And he essentially reiterates exactly what Daniel 7.13 says, as he says, at his second coming, the world will see him on the clouds or in the clouds. That's what Daniel 7.13 says. And there are many other times repeatedly throughout the Old Testament that Jesus taught the details of the Old Testament needed to be fulfilled just as the author had written them. Go figure. So if the prophecies of Jesus' first coming, and there were hundreds of them, were fulfilled literally, physically, just like they were written, I would say we should expect that the, all the unfulfilled prophecies that are still unrealized regarding his second coming, we should expect that they should be fulfilled the same way, Right? Um, and if Jesus, more importantly, if Jesus viewed the Old Testament prophecies as still needing fulfillment, and he didn't say, no, this is allegory when I tell you this, then maybe we should view it the same way he does, right? That just seems to me common sense to me. Okay, speaking of Christ, let's go to point number five, eschatology and Jesus Christ. In both the Old and the New Testaments, Jesus is the center. He is the king of the new kingdom the very first verse of uh, the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we see that Jesus is not only the rightful descendant of Abraham, but also the rightful descendant of King David. And so he is uniquely qualified to fulfill both the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. And in fact, Jesus is will fulfill every prophecy and every covenant found in the scriptures. They all find their fulfillment in him. And this is why Paul declared, this is 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. However, like I said, there's still a lot of Christians that are confused about Jesus' role in fulfilling Old Testament promises. Some believe, again, that the Old Testament promises that God made to national Israel, like the promises of land. Um, I mean, it's hard to overlook, in my opinion, when God reiterated these things to Abraham and to his, uh, his descendants, he kept saying, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. In one passage, it's five times. Uh, but, but again, with the spiritual vision model, if you allegorize these promises to Israel, um, then it leads to a belief that those promises are fulfilled or absorbed into Jesus in such a way that we shouldn't expect a literal future fulfillment of these things. The, the thinking is that since Jesus is the ultimate Israelite or the true Israelite who replaced Israel, that there's no theological significance still existing for the nation of Israel today. But this is not the view that Jesus taught. So he addressed this very 
misunderstanding that he was doing away with the Hebrew Scriptures when he said this. This is Matthew 5, 17 through 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the... This is a famous passage. We should all know this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And so when Jesus was talking about the law and the prophets, he meant the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament as a whole. This included everything written in the Old Scriptures, every iota, every dot. Um, So, according to Jesus, whatever the Hebrew Scriptures said would happen, would happen. The Old Testament, we know it predicted a Messiah who would come and take a worldwide kingdom over. That's what Zechariah 14.9 said. We also know that it said, the Old Testament said, he would suffer for the sins of his people. That's in Isaiah 53. And it's kind of interesting Um, the Old Testament clearly revealed that the Messiah would arrive, but we really don't get clear information that he would arrive once and then come a second time until the New Testament. In Acts 3.21, Peter said that after Jesus ascended into heaven, that heaven must receive Jesus for a while until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So this restoring of all things that the prophets spoke about was still future and would occur when the Father sent Jesus, the Christ, anointed for them. So in summary, it's important that we understand the details of prophecy that were fulfilled in Christ's first coming and which ones will be fulfilled when he comes again. We're still eagerly awaiting many of them to be realized. So... As we know, heaven is not here yet. We know this is not the millennial kingdom. Like I said, if it is, boy, what a disappointment. Uh, I I think, I'm pretty sure Satan is still roaming and deceiving the world. He hasn't been thrown in the lake of fire as far as I can tell. We have not seen the salvation of Israel. We haven't seen the great white throne judgment. We haven't seen the Antichrist and the beast system. Well, I don't think. As far as we know, we haven't entered Daniel's 70th week. I don't know. Who knows? We certainly haven't seen the day of the Lord, and we certainly haven't been raptured yet, have we? So, how does all of this end? Well, I invite you to come back here next week. I'm going to close, and we'll we'll pick up these topics over the next few weeks. And uh, as for everything else, I'll see you back here in 15 minutes as we regather to worship our Creator God, who has told us all of these things in advance. So we'll see you back here then.